What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Okay, now I need to know. Now I got to go check it out. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, a major breakthrough in the fight against COVID-19. Merck's pill cuts hospitalization rates. The stock is soaring. It's giving a big boost to the Dow, and we'll dig into all of it. And supply chain woes are slowing growth. Auto sales falling as there just aren't enough cars to sell. We'll talk about the impact of the chip shortage with former Nissan CEO Carlos Ghosn. And, of course, ask him about his escape from Japan. Plus, a safety pick, a deal is done, a settlement with ScarJo, and will all you can eat save movie theaters? And if we've gotten to this point, Dom, I think we know the answer. Get your popcorn ready for rapid fire, everybody. But will you begin with the Merck news? Dom is here with the numbers. Back when I used to go to the theaters, I used to buy at AMC theaters the large popcorn because it was free refills. You just eat all <laughs> of it and then go, go back again and get the $12 popcorn. Anyway, so Kelly, we're getting a nice rebound today. It's been a seesaw session. I did get that off. Seesaw session. We've seen gains and losses, but right now we're kind of floating towards the positive side of things, at least for the Dow, up 250 points, three-quarters of 1% to the upside. The S&P, 43.27, half percent gains there. The Nasdaq kind of lagging a little bit here, just about flat on the session. A real sentiment helper this morning in the pre-market and in the early session today has been Merck shares. The idea that they could have an antiviral drug, a medication that could cut hospitalization rates by 50%, That's helping to propel those shares to, by the way, the highest levels that we've seen going all the way back to January of this past year. And it's off-session highs right now. Merck, one of the big drivers in today's session so far. And that has had a carryover effect into other parts of the healthcare, biotechnology, pharmaceutical space. If you look at other treatment makers like Regeneron, they're off 5.5%. And a lot of the vaccine makers are seeing some weakness. Now, the context here is... Companies like Novavax, Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech have seen nice rallies because of their COVID vaccines or COVID vaccine candidates. But in this session, Novavax is down 16 percent. Moderna is down 11 percent. Pfizer's off 1 percent. And BioNTech, Pfizer's partner in its COVID vaccine, off 9.5 percent or 9 percent right now. So, Kelly, watch the ripple effects for Merck. We'll see if that carries through. But again, many of these vaccine makers or vaccine candidate makers have done very well up until this point here, giving back some of those gains today. I'll send things back over to you. Yep, and we've heard those huge debates about what to do with them now, Dom Banks. Stocks generally are holding on to gains following that positive news about Merck's COVID drug. Could better COVID and economic data give us an October to remember in a good way this year? Joining me now is Barry James. He's president and portfolio manager at James Investment Research. Barry, it's great to have you back. Now, you've been a little cautious about some of the, you know, headwinds for the market this year. What's your thinking now, now that we've had this reset? Uh, thanks, Kelly. Um, I, I got a word for you. It's called confluence. <laughs> kind of weird word. But if you go just north of St. Louis, you find the confluence of the Big Muddy, which is Missouri, and the Mississippi River. And up to that point, the Mississippi is this nice green river. And then the mud, Big Muddy comes in, and then we know what the Mississippi is like after that. Well, the, the big green part there is low interest rates, easy fed, great earnings. 
And that has favored, you know, the stocks uh, in the technology area, growth and large cap. But the big muddy, that's what's coming in right now. That's where we are. And that is, you know, higher inflation, higher interest rates. And one thing that's surprising people, um, we're seeing earnings estimates going down, not up. Our research says that's not a good thing uh, when, when that starts to happen because it's always been up, up and up for the last quarters. So that tends to favor smaller cap, more cyclical and, uh, and more value. And so that's what we're, we're focusing on today in our Golden Rainbow Fund. Well, now I'm Google mapping uh, the, the areas that you're describing. I wasn't sure if you were saying big money or big muddy. Uh, but in this case, we're, we're interested in both. <laughs> you do have a couple of names, Barry, that you think could do well in this environment. Um, Matador, Fifth Third Bank, uh, Old Dominion as well. Old Dominion right. has not been a great story this year. Uh, you know, there's just so many headwinds on the supply chain and, and labor front. So do you see those getting resolved? Well, when we look at uh, at Old Dominion, uh, it's it's way ahead of its competitors in terms of its margins, uh, in terms of its free cash flow, uh, and and so there's a lot of things that we really like, and they're rewarding shareholders. I always like it when they reward me with dividends or share buybacks, things of that nature. Uh, we think that those are, are real good, but they're best in class, and they're keeping their drivers. A lot of people can't, but they're keeping. They're investing heavily in that, and we think that it, this supply chain problem will actually work to their to their favor. Barry, can I ask you about energy? Just curious for your thoughts, what you make of this big run-up in prices, the global supply crunch. What's it going to mean for the U.S.? Would you be long any names in that space? Uh, yes, we've been uh, overweight in our Golden Rainbow Fund for, for a while now uh, in the energy sector. Uh, and we like the, the, you know, the producers out in the field like Matador. They're more Permian Basin, uh, but they have real high you know, uh, revenue growth. They have great operating margins, and they're paying down their debt rapidly. Those are three things we think are important for any company you buy right now, have quality. And the other is pricing power. So if we go hat in hand to OPEC, that's, that's one of the big things to me. Prices are not going to be coming down anytime soon, and we have not recovered all the drilling that we had, uh, you know, with that last uh, last kind of slowdown that we we saw, and all the stuff, you know, offshore with the with the hurricane. So we think there's still plenty of room left in that area, and uh, probably higher prices yet to come in energy. And so there are a number of uh, energy companies that would be worthwhile picking up. I didn't even realize Matador was one of them. You're two steps ahead of me, which I should have anticipated. Uh, they are a four and a half billion dollar market cap, and again, that's after about right. tripling this year. So how long can you feel comfortable being in some of these names? We've seen huge gains in uh, some of its peer group as well, the Anteros of the world, um, I think range as well. But you have to wonder, you know, with the entire global policymaker complex leaning against higher energy prices, leaning against fossil fuels in the long run, you know, how do you kind of know when to just pocket these gains and step to the sidelines? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, when we look at our research, uh, when there, there's a growing, growing surplus, you know, we see the, uh, you know, the, the tanks are all full and, uh, you know, they're just lined up offshore to, to bring oil, uh, uh, you know, into the states. Uh, that's going to tell us that the price has probably reached its, its zenith. Uh, we don't think we're, we're there yet. And even if we are near a peak, uh, the earnings that are coming in right now, I think, are, are pretty uh, pretty strong and will support the companies uh, for the moment. So uh, we don't see it in this next quarter, uh, wow. at least. All right. Well, I'll describe you as tactically optimistic uh, <laughs> on the markets. <laughs> yeah. Certain areas uh, you do feel comfortable with. Thanks for uh, joining us to talk about them, Barry. We really appreciate it, as always. 
Barry James is with James Investment Research. Coming up from auto exec to international fugitive, we'll speak with Carlos Ghosn about his new book, The State of the Auto Industry, and his life following his daring escape from Japan nearly two years ago. Plus, we've talked a lot about the surge in nat gas prices, but now Bank of America is out with a bold call on oil, saying a cold winter could push Brent crude prices up past 100 bucks a barrel. Their head of commodities research joins us ahead on the exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Ford and GM are coming off their first negative quarter since early last year. And now we're getting a look at just how much supply chain issues have slowed the automaker's sales in the past few months. Phil Lebeau is here with the numbers. Hi, Phil. Hey, Kelly. It was a rough third quarter. We knew it would be, and the numbers we're getting today back that up. Take a look at the third quarter sales uh, from some of the major automakers, General Motors, Honda, Nissan, GM down Almost a third compared to the same quarter last year. And then when you take a look at Toyota, it doesn't report them on a quarterly basis. But for September, its sales were down 22.4%. And then finally, we have Tesla. Now, we haven't received the Q3 delivery numbers from Tesla. We likely will get them tomorrow or Sunday. The expectation is for a record quarter when it comes to deliveries. We'll have more on auto sales throughout the day. But I want to pivot now to Carlos Ghosn, the former Nissan chairman and CEO, who joins us live from Beirut, Lebanon, uh, where he is promoting a book that he has written about uh, what's happened with his life, especially over the last couple of years. Um, Carlos, thanks for joining us. We, uh, there's the book, Broken Alliances, which you have written. Uh, the big question I think a lot of people have when, they, when I bring up your name, they say, he's in Lebanon now. What are the chances he's there for good? Or does he think that he'll ever leave Lebanon? Oh, I, I hope I will. Uh, and I'm fighting uh, for it. I mean, the only thing that forbids me to get out of Lebanon is the fact that there is a red notice, uh, you know, sent by Interpol at the request of the Japanese authorities. But uh, there are ways to fight the red notice because Interpol has its own rules. And usually when human rights are violated, they should not intervene. When the issue is political, they should not intervene. When the issue could be solved outside the legal uh, boundary, they should not intervene. So I have these three elements in my case. So I have to be patient, but I obviously hope to be able to leave Lebanon one day. 
Carlos, since we last talked, Americans Peter and Michael Taylor uh, were sentenced in Japan for their roles in helping you escape from that country. I think one of them received one year and eight months. The other received two years in prison. What did you think as you saw their legal case unfold? Well, frankly, that means uh, uh, you're mentioning the Taylors. I would mention Greg Kelly, which is still struggling, uh, you know, with the, with the Japanese courts. All of this turns around the hostage justice system in Japan. You know, frankly, the, the statistics of the prosecutors win in 99.4 percent of the of the cases is frankly just amazing, amazing. And not, not only the statistic is amazing. How can you win in 99.4 percent in the case in a democrat in so-called democratic country? But at the same time, you're proud of it. You're saying, oh, my God, that means the prosecutors are doing a wonderful job in Japan because they're winning 99.4 percent. We never talk about the defense. We never talk about the judge. It looks like, you know, they are, uh, you know, just establishing the sentence and making the decision. And everybody else is just a, decor- a, a decoration. Frankly, I, I feel bad. Not I feel bad about, for them. I feel bad for all the people who are going through the system, particularly if you are a foreigner. Carlos, separate from your situation, you're watching the auto industry. I know you still talk with a number of people in the auto industry. What do you think about this transition that we're seeing with so much money being poured into the development of electric vehicles right now? Oh, it's it's normal, Phil. You know, I know this is a 13 years old story. When I launched the first mass marketed electric car, I told you we're going to get there. A lot of people were skeptical. Now the whole industry is about a transition to electric car. You know, this industry is about three things now, uh, electric cars, autonomous cars, and mobility for all. And we are seeing this unfolding in front of our eyes. And those who are who prepare for this, invest in this before the others, will be the winners, will be the winners of, uh, of the game. It's amazing to see how many companies are saying, you know, we're going to abandon completely the combustion engine in uh, 2030, in 2035, 2040. The same company which uh, in 2008, when I launched the first uh, series of mass market electric car, were laughing and were very skeptical about it. You and I have talked. You uh, have had great things to say about Elon Musk and Tesla when we've had conversations in the past. Put Tesla aside. We know that they're the industry leader right now. Is there one automaker that you look at around the world and you say, if there's somebody other than Tesla that's going to rise up and truly be the company that's going to take Tesla off the king of the hill in terms of electric vehicles, which company would it be and why? Well, uh, in my opinion, it's going to be a German company. I would hesitate to tell you if it's going to be a Mercedes or Volkswagen, uh, Volkswagen and all the group of companies. I would say the Germans are the first one who, after criticizing the electric car heavily in 2008 and mocking it, uh, you know, discovered all of a sudden that they needed to move and they moved swiftly. Japanese are late. They are stucking with the hybrid and now with the hydrogen cars. Maybe hydrogen cars... Uh, which we call fuel cell, will come one day, but uh, the next 10 or 15 years are going to be the the era or the generation of electric cars. Are you surprised the Japanese automakers uh, have taken so long to really get their act together when it comes to investing in electric vehicles? Not at all. You you know, the the strength of the Japanese is, uh, you know, uh, the, the rigor by which they can enhance and uh, develop uh, uh, systems that they adopt, but it takes a long time for them to adopt an innovation. And for electric car, uh, except Nissan that I was leading at the time, 
uh, they were very, very slow to move, and they are still slow to move, and they're going to pay a high price for this. And what do you think about a lot of these startups? I mean, we talk about Lordstown Motors. They just sold their plant uh, to uh, Foxconn. What do you think happens with a number of the other startups? Do they, do they last look, five years, uh, ten years? Look, you know, the startup is normal. You know, when, when they see that all these big companies, the big car makers, are so slow to react in front of an innovation that obviously makes a lot of sense, which is obviously part of this industry, uh, and they see that, you know, not a lot of uh, company, established companies are jumping on the bandwagon. Obviously, it favors startups. They say, okay, let me occupy the space. So I think a lot of these startups will uh, uh, prosper uh, as long as they put their act together and they really uh, operationally are capable to offer what the consumer wants. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about some of the startups turning around electric car and autonomous cars. Carlos, thank you for spending your Friday night in Beirut, uh, a little bit of it with us. And here's the book that I know you're out promoting right now, Broken Alliances. Carlos Ghosn, thank you again, joining us from Beirut, Lebanon. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Always interesting to hear what Carlos has to say, especially when you get his thoughts on where the industry is right now. Yes. And again, saying people laughed at him when he was, uh, you know, sort of in his view, pioneering EV cars with Nissan, you know, more than a decade ago and still thinks the Japanese might be late for their focus on hydrogen. Phil, really interesting stuff. Thank you so much for bringing that to us here today. We really appreciate it. That's our Phil LeBeau again speaking with Carlos Ghosn. We've got some breaking news now involving Amazon. Eamon Javers here with the story. Eamon? Kelly, the Department of Justice says that a Texas man has been sentenced to 10 years in federal prison today for his role in a plot to blow up an Amazon data center. Uh, The Department of Justice saying Seth Aaron Penley, who is 28 years old, planned to blow up an Amazon data center. He said he hoped a successful attack could kill off about 70 percent of the entire Internet. He also claimed uh, to a person uh, who was observing him that he had been present at the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol building. Here's a quote uh, from Penley to an FBI informant saying the main objective is to F up the Amazon servers, uh, adding that he hoped that anger at the oligarchy uh, would be enough to provoke a reaction uh, that would convince the American people to take action against what he perceives to be a dictatorship in the United States. Uh, On April 8th, uh, Penley met with an undercover FBI employee to pick up what he believed to be explosive devices. Those devices, uh, the Department of Justice says, were inert. uh, And then uh, Penley was arrested subsequent to that. So the headline here is a Texas man has been sentenced to 10 years in federal prison for a plot to blow up an Amazon data center. Uh, And of course, Kelly, this raises the the specter of a terror threat not only to Amazon, but also to other potential American companies in the wake of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. This appears to be at least ideologically linked uh, to the attack on the Capitol. Kelly, back over to you. And a reminder that cybersecurity isn't the only kind of security uh, these companies need to worry about. Eamon, thank you very much. Eamon Javers in Washington today. Coming up, Congress prevented a government shutdown before the midnight deadline, but they couldn't pass the infrastructure bill, at least yet. We have the latest out of Washington. Plus, El Salvador is harnessing the power of a volcano to mine Bitcoin. It's not that one (laughs) erupting in Hawaii right now. We're going to bring you the viral video shared by the country's president. Stay with us here on The Exchange. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Quick check on the markets. Show the Dow up 340 points, paced by Merck, which is up 9% after its uh, oral treatment for COVID. The Dow, again, about up 1%. S&P up two-thirds of 1%. NASDAQ hanging on to a quarter percent gain. And all three averages are still lower for the week. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. And here's what's happening at this hour. The top women's soccer league in the U.S. has canceled all of its games this weekend. The National Women's Soccer League making the move as it deals with the fallout from allegations of sexual misconduct against a former coach, North Carolina Courage coach, Paul Riley was fired yesterday following claims of sexual coercion by two former players. The U.S. trying to improve relations with France following uproar over that nuclear submarine deal with Australia. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken announcing that he will visit France next week. And Spain's Canary Islands, an erupting volcano has opened up a third lava event. Authorities are now watching to see if lava from the event will join the main flow towards the sea or cut a new path downhill. And on the news tonight, protecting houses from wildfires, how a company is using foil to wrap homes and prevent damage. I'm going to have that story tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly? Awesome. Looking forward to it, Rahel. Thank you very much. Coming up, we'll dig into the state of the energy sector as we head into the winter season. Bank of America's global head of commodities is with us for his call to, for Brent to hit 100 a barrel. It's currently around 78. And as we had to break, big news from inside CNBC today. Our own Jim Cramer now delivered right to your inbox with the CNBC Investing Club. Jim will be sending daily emails, writing for the website, and appearing in videos online, all to give you his unique insights into the markets. And you'll have a front row seat to what stocks Jim is trading in his charitable trust. He'll tell you all about his winners and losers, total transparency. You can sign up to find out more at cnbc.com slash investing club club or just point your phone at the QR code on the screen there and you'll get all the details. Very cool stuff. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back, everybody. The energy crunch hitting Europe. Make it worse as China is telling its companies to secure energy supplies at any cost. And in the U.S., fears that a cold winter could limit supply here as well are sinking in. Oil is rising today, though off highs for the week. Natural gas down about 3 percent, still around $5.60. But look at the moves we've seen in September. WTI, West Texas crude, jumping 10 percent. Brent up 8 percent. Natural gas up 34 percent in just a month. And now there are calls for the U.S. to cut off exports and ensure supplies at home. Francisco Blanche says oil could top 100 a barrel in the coming months. He's Bank of America Global Research Head of Global Commodities. Francisco, welcome back. You're talking Brent, right? But WTI probably wouldn't be far behind. Yeah, that's right, uh, Kelly. Thank you for having me. I think WTI will probably be a couple of dollars behind that call. And and remember that uh, we are at a unique uh, point in time now where, where just all energy prices are going up. It's, as you pointed out, it's uh, global gas um, heading into China. We're seeing a tremendous amount of demand for liquid natural gas there. We're seeing European gas prices falling, falling or, or following right behind the Chinese prices. And, um, and then, of course, the U.S. markets also started to tighten on the back of this global uh, extraordinary global conditions that we have here. I, you know, 
I don't want to overly connect the dots, but I wonder if this is partly why airline stocks have been underperforming. You know, obviously this would be a, a big input input for them. But let's talk more broadly. You are warning that this oil crisis could cause something like we saw in the 70s or like we saw uh, just before the financial crisis hit. Do you think people are focused enough on the effects it's going to have here? Or if I were to take sort of the optimistic case, maybe it's just, you know, gasoline's a little more expensive. Your heating bills go up 10 percent, but it's not the end of the world. You know, how what's the likely outcome here? Well, look, I mean, I think um, what you can say is at the very least, the U.S. is much more insulated from these global energy trends than the rest of the world. As, as we just pointed out, China, Europe are paying $30 per MMBTU for natural gas. In the U.S., gas prices are 5 maybe $6 per MMBTU, right? So, you have a, you know, prices are a fraction there of, of, of what you're seeing on a global scale. But the, the oil market is, is indeed global. Now, the benefit to the U.S. is that obviously the U.S. actually has a lot of domestic oil production. Um, so I do think that the spike, if it does indeed happen, will be less detrimental to the U.S. economy. But on a global basis, it could be very complicated because, remember, U.S. inflation is 5% already, right? Uh, German inflation hit 4.1% uh, in September. So uh, we have central banks telling us that inflation is going to go down in the next few months. If we have a cold winter, uh, oil prices are going to rise with gas, yeah. and it will be really hard to bring inflation down. What do you tell the market if you're Powell, if you're uh, Christine Lagarde? Uh, can you keep telling them this is a transitory situation when we know supply chains are broken around the world, when we know that there is all kinds of issues moving goods around the planet, there are shortages of labor in different pockets of the economy. Do we, can we really uh, keep sending that message if energy prices go up 20 30% from the current levels? I, I highly doubt it. So I, I think that warning is, uh, is pretty clear as it is. So let me just ask you about the energy price piece of this. If things really go parabolic, they will eventually collapse, won't they? Or do you think this is some kind of permanently higher plateau? Well, I mean, I think eventually, yes. So I think we, we have a, a winter weather spike. Um, you're going to hurt segments of industrial activity. We've already seen uh, some UK uh, industrial players shutting down activity. We've seen also uh, some more impact in, 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 uh, in Europe. But as you pointed out in the beginning of the program, uh, the Chinese government is telling companies to supply, to, to, to uh, essentially uh, secure energy supplies at any cost. To me, this is a little concerning because remember, we have uh, uh, issued monetary and fiscal policy like never before. Remember, monetary policy, uh, the monetary policy expansion is 3.3 times what we saw in the financial crisis uh, for COVID. And the fiscal policy is four and a half times. So we've sent out this enormous amount of money into the world. And now we're wondering, why are prices rising? Right. Supply chains were broken to begin with. And we have this enormous amount of, of, of uh, uh, fiscal and monetary policy floating around. So so my, my concern is that, that we end up triggering something a little more complicated here that's hard to stop given where we are in the inventory cycle. So Inventories are just low, Kelly. Explain that very quickly, if you can. In other words, because of all this extra cash that's causing demand way outstripping supply, right. when you say things could get a little more unusual, does that mean we could see much more extreme spikes to the upside before this is over? I, I think there's a risk of that. And, and obviously, uh, remember, uh, neither Saudi Arabia nor Russia are uh, particularly interesting, interested in solving an energy crisis that they don't feel they have created. Because a lot of the energy crisis we're facing today is somewhat connected to uh, to the green policies we've, we've been pursuing by limiting our, our coal-fired generation, by limiting our, our, um, 
um, uh, nuclear power generation in different parts of the world and, and oil fire generation and just generally oil usage. So we, we are kind of putting this straight jacket around the economy um, globally and, and, and then we inject all this money and then prices just get out of whack and, and, and we are surprised. Maybe we shouldn't be. Um, and, and I think ultimately um, the macro risks, I think, will continue to build and, and inflation, of course, is always going to be the biggest biggest challenge for central banks and, frankly, for, for equity and bond investors to deal with here. It, you know, it's like uh, Alan Greenspan always, always used to say that monetary policy acts with long and variable lags. We can throw fiscal in the mix as well. But here we are 18 months out, uh, possibly right. having cascaded this into an energy crisis. Francisco, uh, we'll leave it there for now. But thank you very much uh, for your time today. Francisco Blanche with Bank of America Global Research. Now, a, a dispute settled, a deal off the table, and an idea just tasty enough to maybe get people back to movie theaters. It's all coming up in rapid fire. As we head to break, take one more look at the markets, which are higher again after a brief dip into the red. The Dow is sitting near session highs right now at 365 points. We're back in a minute. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories. This is like a grab bag version of Rapid Fire. Uh, here to help break down all the headlines today, let's welcome in our own Julia Borston, Nancy Tangler, who's the chief investment officer at Laffer Tangler Investments, and Derek Thompson, who's a staff writer for The Atlantic, I think making his Rapid Fire debut. So you know, this is kind of a big deal. Derek, uh, welcome and welcome to everybody. Uh, our first topic today is General Mills. The shares are higher after City upgraded it to a buy, saying investors are missing out on a good story that got lost in a beaten down sector. They said strong first quarter results were a source of optimism. General Mills beat across the board when it reported last week, seeing strength in pet food and pantry staples, thanks in part to stay-at-home habits. But shares are up just 3% this year, Nancy, as the reopening trade has taken hold. Do you agree with this call? Not really, Kelly. I think you want to own a great story in a great sector uh, at this stage in the market. And so, you know, you've got a company that's got one to two percent top line growth, flat EPS um, guidance from the company and input costs rising seven to eight percent. So it seems to me that there's probably better places to be and that this is going to be a, a, a sort of muddler a longer. Julia? Well, look, General Mills is all about the pet trend. They have all these different pet brands. And the fact is a lot of people got pets during the pandemic and they still have those pets. To me, one interesting angle here is the fact that as people have more hybrid work, maybe work from home some days in the office, others, I wonder if they're going to be cooking more or sort of continuing the cooking trend of the pandemic because they're not fully back in the office and going out for lunch every day. Yes, I can confirm. Uh, Derek, maybe you can give us a little peek inside your household there. But there, there's a lot of cooking going on these days. There's a lot of cooking going on these days. I used to go out to restaurants all the time. Uh, now I have learned how to cook. I used to go uh, to bars all the time. Now I've learned how to make cocktails. So there's been a lot of work that I used to rely on the service sector for that now has been definitely insourced because of the pandemic. So, yes, I feel that very strongly. But will you be back out there as soon as you can? Or, I mean, you know, I, I would like to be, but the last time I tried to get, you know, take out penne uh, pasta vodka sauce was $27. That was the last end of that. So for me, it was a Cacatri Pepe. Uh, I, I respect the, uh, the penny vodka. Uh, look, I, I want to go back out to restaurants. I want to go out to bars. Like, I, I love restaurants and the bar scene. It's one of my favorite things about living in a city, and it's why I hope to always live in a city. But at the same time, I'm never going to forget the skills that I've learned. And so I think the threshold has been raised. Like, 
I make a pretty good cocktail. I make a pretty good cachoe pepe. <laughs> so in a way that means that like I need, I really need that bar to be pretty high to get me out. And that might have some trickle down effects for sort of the middle class of restaurants because they might not essentially compete very well against my own kitchen. I agree. I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm not half bad. I never thought I'd say that, but these days I'm not half bad. All right. But I still think Nancy's point about the investment kind of hangs over uh, as the conclusion to all of this. So let's move along and talk about the deal that was just excuse me, just scrapped between Zoom and Five9. This one got Kathy Wood to weigh in and everything. Let's let's dig into it for a second. The Five9 shareholders rejected it. It was about a $15 billion takeover bid for the cloud contact center company. Uh, they just thought the 13% premium on shares for this takeover wasn't enough. Square paid 30% to Afterpay in that deal. Um, Zoom shares have been down 30%, Julia, since the deal was announced. So, um, you know, Kathy Wood's take on all of this is that, you know, Five Nine's going to going to maybe wish that uh, I, well, I can't I don't want to put words into her mouth, but that they might come back at this one and, and sort of think it was a missed opportunity. Well, look, there are a number of analysts that upgraded Five Nine shares on this, thinking that there is more upside and that Five Nine could have gotten a higher premium. But to me, Kelly, the really interesting angle here is Zoom. What does this say about what Zoom needs for its next leg of growth? The fact that it needs to focus on the enterprise customer and that's, speaking of hybrid work, that's where their business is really going down the line. Nancy? I mean, I think I think the sell-off in the Zoom price obviously was the reason that this deal was scrapped, and now they're both up on this news. Um, if it were me, um, we don't own either, but I would probably be dipping my toe into Zoom here simply because this is a company that's got earnings or the industry leader. They can figure it out. If it's not this acquisition, it'll be another. All right, and I see Derek nodding in agreement there. So let's move along. Talk about the superhero settlement in a case that rocked Hollywood. Scarlett Johansson and Disney agreeing to settle her breach of contract suit that she brought back in July when she she claimed that Disney hurt her potential earnings by releasing Black Window on Disney Plus at the same time it was released in theaters. Her salary was tied to box office performance. Disney accused her of ignoring the dangers of entering movie theaters during the pandemic, kind of being, you know, sort of misreading uh, the sort of the public at that moment. Anyway, they said she had already been paid 20 million bucks for her work on the film. Both sides said they were pleased to resolve their differences. Derek, exact terms weren't disclosed. What did we learn here? I don't know if Derek shot froze there. Julia, what did we learn here? Well, uh, what we learned here is that studios want flexibility going forward, and they know they're going to have to pay stars for it. Before things, you know, theatrical performance was directly tied to the outcomes, both for producers, directors, and movie stars. Going forward, it's going to be a lot about flexibility and also about the value of streaming. Um, it's it's notable that they didn't disclose the terms. One report uh, from Deadline.com said that Scarlett Johansson is getting paid $40 million all in. So these are big numbers here, but it also doesn't look good for either party that it had to go to a lawsuit. I think going forward, we're going to see whether it's movie stars or studios try to avoid the scrutiny of being in the public sphere with a very high profile lawsuit like that. Derek, what would you add to that? Sure. Sorry, I had to quickly do some reporting on the deal. Uh, so, look, basically, ScarJo is the biggest female star in the world. Uh, she is unique in a place of power to fight for actors, to redefine the way that streaming revenue is divided among actors. And I think that's what this is about. How is this going to play down the line? Uh, my understanding is that Emma Stone got a great deal for the Cruella sequel precisely because of ScarJo's settlement with Disney or the prospect of her settlement with Disney. So this isn't just about Disney versus ScarJo. This is about the way that stars that tend to be executive producers that get points on box office or on streaming revenue are going to benefit 
from the total revenue made from these projects down the line. That's really what it's about. Yeah, Disney investors seem relieved uh, that this episode is behind them, $40 million or not. The shares are up about 4%. And speaking of movies, the Wall Street Journal is highlighting how a small movie theater in suburban Detroit has got creative with its pricing to get people back in the seats. $25 for a ticket and all-you-can-eat popcorn, soda, and snacks are 12 bucks for the regular ticket, no food. Nancy, is this going to save the theater? Because uh, AMC shareholders are going to need something uh, blockbuster here. So um, you're all while you're all cooking, I'm eating popcorn every night for dinner. So for me, this is uh, an epic deal. I mean, I might even think about getting a plane ticket to the theater so that I can uh, in, engage in it. But look, I mean, we know that the the theaters make a lot of money off of uh, the food. Uh, concession. And yet that those numbers are down um, pretty materially and uh, capacity utilization is down according to AMC. So I think right now they want to get seats um, filled and this is a way to do it. And then they can phase this out another time. I don't think it's going to be a moneymaker for the theaters, but I do think it will draw people in. There's AMC shares, Julia, around the $38 mark, but there is more scrutiny on the fact that the box office numbers are not anywhere near what they used to be. They're not near what they used to be, but we do have the big James Bond movie, No Time to Die, coming out a week from today. But I think this all goes back to the conversation we were having before about what it takes to leave the house. The bar is raised for restaurants and the bar is also raised for movie theaters. I don't think this particular food deal necessarily makes sense considering how much revenue used to be generated from concessions. But I do think that we're going to see more theater chains invest in a more high-end experience, allow people to get beer and wine and good food while they're watching the movies, because you have to make the experience really different from sitting home on your yeah, couch. Yeah, you got to outcompete Derek's Cacio e Pepe. Last word to you, Mr. Thompson. <laughs> well, my, my Cacio e Pepe is, is very, very good. It's definitely a reason to stay home. But look, I, I love movie theaters. I want to go back to movie theaters. I can't wait to see Dune. I can't wait to see the new James Bond movie. But we're absolutely at the beginning of a vicious cycle for movie theaters. More movies streamed at home means people are going to stay home, which means that more movie theaters are going, movie studios are going to want to reach audiences where they actually are, mm-hmm. which is home, eating the Cacio e Pepe. Um, <laughs> movies are in a long-term decline. Movie ticket sales revenue, uh, movie ticket sales peaked in 2012. Uh, the big releases from the major studios peaked in 2007. Um, they have just been in a long-term static decline. And so I think this is just really the cherry on top of that Sunday, that you're going to see movie theaters of the future be just a much smaller product. And then we're going to look back to 2018, 2019 as being the end of that peak. All right, apes, go after him. Guys, thank you all for Rapid Fire today. It's been a pleasure. It's really fun. Derek Thompson, Julia Borston, and Nancy Tangler. Still coming up, one hurdle cleared in Washington, but a lot of wrangling still left. What's going to happen once all the politics have played out? Those answers coming up as the Dow continues to rise this afternoon, up around 400 points heading into the weekend. The government is staying open, at least for now. We know that much after a short-term funding bill was passed. But we still don't know the fate of infrastructure or the bigger spending bill Congress is working on. Elon Moy is joining us now with where things stand as of 1.48 p.m. Eastern in D.C., Elon. Well, Kelly, President Biden is now heading to Capitol Hill to try to break that logjam over not just the infrastructure bill, but also the broader social spending package. Now, House Democrats already met for nearly three hours this morning. They've got another caucus meeting coming up later in the afternoon. Lawmakers say they are making progress. They describe the mood as dynamic. But there has been a growing desire to hear directly from President Biden. The White House has been dispatching top officials to the Hill for the past several days. But there is a hope that the president himself will seal the deal. I think the president should be involved. Very few of us have seen the president. 
in the nine months he's been president. And I think he should come to a caucus. Now, progressives are still holding out for a vote on that broader agenda before they will get behind the infrastructure bill. But the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, told reporters that Democratic leadership has been listening to their concerns from the start, and she signaled openness to some other kind of assurance that their priorities won't get watered down. Things only happen here when there is urgency and, and, you know, some reason for people to be at the table. We've seen more progress in the last 48 hours than we have seen in a long time on reconciliation, on the Build Back Better Act. Now, technically, Kelly, the House is supposed to go into recess after today, but I can tell you that lawmakers are already canceling their flights. Back over to you. And that piece of this begins. Elon, thank you very much. Our Elon Moy diligently following all of this for us. Will a delay in the infrastructure vote put the rest of President Biden's economic agenda in jeopardy? Joining me now with what the standoff in this party means for businesses, Jerry Seib is executive Washington editor at The Wall Street Journal. Jerry, always wonderful to see you, and thanks for your time again. So is this just the kind of back and forth that we can ignore and, and still expect infrastructure and the spending plan uh, to be passed by the end of the year, if not shortly thereafter? Well, I, th- I think more likely than not, not certain by any means. But, you know, the fact that President Biden's going up to the Hill probably means they're close enough to having an agreement within the party to get this done, because you don't send him up to the Hill to fail. You send him up to close the deal. Uh, that's probably what's going on. And, you know, look, I think the reality here is that this is almost too big to fail for Democrats. The optics of collapsing with nothing to show for their first year when they have control of uh, all of Congress and the White House, that's just too much failure for them to contemplate. So, I mean, what's the old Mark Twain saying? Nothing focuses the mind like the prospect of a hanging. I mean, that's, I think, where the Democrats are today. So I suspect they'll get there. It's been plenty messy, but we've seen in the past that messiness isn't remembered so much in the long run if they can just get this done. Absolutely. It's always forgotten. And then we just kind of go on to talk about the infrastructure bill, the spending plan and so forth. Um, As it's shaping up, do you think the spending plan is going to be fairly modest in size and scope? The infrastructure sounds like it's pretty much locked in with only $550 billion of new spending. I know people even in kind of the different communities that might benefit from it are all a little disappointed at the sort of not very ambitious scope of it. But that's the reality, I think, of, of the washing, the sort of purple Washington that we have. So what even if they pass everything, because it doesn't sound like three and a half trillion will pass, maybe, you know, something one or two you tell me. But what do you think it will be remembered for, even if it does well, all pass? Well, it is going to it is going to get smaller. I, I think that's just the foregone conclusion. You know, Joe Manson and, and Kristen Sinema in the Senate have seen to it that it will be smaller. But I think in some respects here, the Democrats, the leadership in Congress and at the White House have kind of lost control of the messaging here. You know, we're talking about the difference between spending two trillion dollars of additional money, say, for example, or four trillion dollars. Well, either way, that's a lot of spending. And uh, the progressives have kind of set up this debate so that they're talking about cuts. Well, there are no cuts here. There's only a question of how much additional spending will be added. Mm. And in a way, they should be portraying this as a Democratic victory, no matter what that final bottom line total is. And by the way, they have next year to come back when they're still in control of Congress and try to do a little bit more. So, yeah, I think it's going to get smaller, but it's still going to be plenty big. And, you know, you and I have been around long enough to remember when a trillion dollars in spending was really something. Well, we're way north of that right now, no matter what happens. Yeah, the big response to the 08 financial crisis was $787 billion, you know, and and at the time that was unprecedented. You know, there's some options on the table. I don't know exactly where we stand, but for instance, expanding access to Medicare, um, you know, 
I guess maybe if you just leave in place Obamacare subsidies, that doesn't maybe have the same effect. But certainly if you expand Medicare, people will be talking about that and benefiting from it for a very long time, much like up to 26-year-olds staying on their parents' insurance became a huge deal after it was enacted. So which of these do you think are the ones that will be kind of legacy pieces that pass if they are included in the final legislation? Well, I, th- I think the healthcare one is an interesting choice because, in a way, there's a philosophical difference here among Democrats. Everybody wants to do more on healthcare. The question is, what more do you want to do? If you expand Obamacare, you're expanding coverage mostly through Medicaid to cover more Americans, to get more people with insurance. If you uh, add to Medicare dental and vision coverage, you're significantly improving uh, the the lot of older Americans at a significant amount of cost, but you've really changed the Medicare program, which is the higher priority for Democrats. That's one of the things they're going to have to decide. But either way, I think that change in healthcare will be one of the legacy uh, uh, issues that comes out of this. I think the other one that we ought to keep an eye on is additional help for families, whatever form that finally takes. You're talking about uh, in, increased and perhaps permanent increases in ch- the child tax care credit, mm-hmm. uh, more help for uh, for working mothers, more child care credits, a lot of money to go to young families no matter what. I think in, when Democrats step back from this and stop arguing about the precise amount of money, they will be able to say, we made significant improvements for the economic lot of working class Americans. You know, people will disagree with how important that is, but that's what Democrats will be able to say. Sure. And that message becomes very important in the midterms, obviously. Jerry, thank you. Hope to check back in soon. Sure. Happy to be with you. Jerry Seib with The Wall Street Journal. Bitcoin jumping 8% today. That's good news for El Salvador, which recently made it lingual tender. Wait till you hear what the country is doing now to address energy usage concerns. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. El Salvador has become the country to watch in the evolution of Bitcoin, first making it legal tender, now taking extraordinary steps to address mining's energy usage problem. CNBC.com tech reporting Mackenzie Segalos is here with more on what we know about their latest efforts, Mackenzie, involving volcanoes. <laughs> So for the first time, Kelly, El Salvador is officially using power harnessed from a volcano to mine for Bitcoin. President Bukele said a couple hours ago that the country has so far earned $269 worth of Bitcoin. Now, details are sparse, but here's what we do know. Earlier this week, the president posted a video showing these sweeping landscape aerials of an energy factory in the thick of a forest bordering a volcano. We saw a shipping container full of Bitcoin mining rigs, as well as technicians installing and plugging in ASIC miners. We also know the government is working hand-in-hand with state-owned geothermal electric company Lajeo, which is already running these power plants across the country. So they're not starting from zero when it comes to infrastructure. Kelly? It seems like they're trying to address the energy usage uh, that with the energy crunch happening globally right now uh, is one of the major things that critics often talk about when it comes to using Bitcoin, period, right? Right. It absolutely is. And if this works, it could be a huge plus for the larger debate around Bitcoin's carbon footprint. What we're talking about here is geothermal energy. It's renewable, it's clean, and in some places, it might be making use of a previously untapped resource, which makes the case that Bitcoin can act as an accelerant to renewable energy development. Yes, if we can get more volcanoes online, uh, seems like that would be a good thing for everybody. (laughs) Mackenzie, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Mackenzie Segalos today. Well, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day 
Same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.